<clears throat> once you've found that, please pray with me. Father in heaven, now we come to your scripture and we pray that you would enable us to hear it, to see it, that this would dig deep uh, within our souls, uh, transformingly, Father, to change us that we might exalt Christ whether we live or die. So be with us, I pray. Grant to us strength of body and mind. In Jesus' name, amen. Philippians in chapter 1 and verse 18. <clears throat> yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as is my eager expectation and hope, that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This, this is a profound, profound passage of Scripture. To say that is to say a great deal, I suppose, because this is the profoundest of books. So to find a weighty passage in a weighty book is something to take under great consideration. For there's a sentence here that I trust ran past your mind as I read it for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. That is very, very significant and gives me great pause. For I wonder, can it really be said of me? Can I really say that? We know we mustn't say it flippantly. Certainly it's a statement that should be made by all Christians for me to live as Christ but to die as gain, but we understand the depths of that statement. I don't think we wish it to roll off our lips too quickly, too easily, for fear that it might simply be without thinking, but we mustn't think that this statement is one that can only be made by super-Christians, by people like the Apostle Paul, that this is something unique to him. It shouldn't be because, you see, it was the very foundation of his rejoicing in God. He said, yes, and I will rejoice. And he ends up by saying, for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. It was the foundation, it was a foundation, a key to his own ability to rejoice in the midst of difficult circumstances. But yet he calls the church in Philippi, he calls you and me to rejoice as well. And notice in verse 25 of chapter 1, he says, I know that this will remain and continue, I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. He expects them to have joy in the faith. In chapter 2 and verse 18, he says, Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Chapter 3 and verse 1, he says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. In verse, chapter 4, verse 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, Rejoice. That is to say, he expected them to rejoice. He commanded them to rejoice. Thus, they needed the same foundation that Paul had. If Paul was going to rejoice, he needed to know that for him to live was Christ and to die was gain. If they're going to be able to rejoice, they need to know that for them to live is Christ and to die is gain. So it's not something that's just for super-Christians. This is something that should roll off our lips concerning concerning ourselves, but 
If you're like me, when I hear this phrase, I, I, I step back. Can I really say this of myself? For me to live is Christ. Or do, I, do I know that for me to die is really, really gain? And Paul comes to this particular place in this letter. Uh, you remember uh, from his own rejoicing, he's in prison. Uh, he's in prison unjustly. He's in prison because he's been preaching the gospel out of love for others, and yet he finds himself in prison, probably in Rome, and he's in prison. And also he finds that while he's preaching, or while he's in prison, others are preaching in such a way as to really diminish, if not destroy, Paul's reputation. And so he's getting a double whammy here. He's in prison unjustly, and now his reputation's going to pot because of what others are saying uh, about him. And, and yet in the midst of all that, he concludes, you remember, in verse 18 of chapter 1 by saying, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul's still able to rejoice in the midst of this because he's a gospel-centered man, because what drives him is his love for and his understanding of the gospel. And you see, as he understands the gospel, he knows, therefore, that he's loved by God. <coughs> Excuse me. I went to Boston over the weekend, and all I brought back was a cold. It's maybe the most desirable thing to bring back from Boston. I don't know, but uh, <clears throat> since the Red Sox aren't playing. But but Paul's a gospel-centered man, and because his life is informed by the gospel, he knows that he's loved by God because he knows that if God the Father did not spare his own son but gave him up for Paul, then he will also, along with Christ, Give Paul all things. And so Paul understands that his imprisonment and even the diminishment of his reputation isn't fate. And it isn't just simply the result of some ill-conceived plan against him, but it's the result, ultimately speaking, in the bigger sphere of things, of a loving providence. However mysterious that is, Paul understands that there's a loving providence behind every circumstance in his life. And so though he be in prison and though his reputation is fading, he's able to say, but the gospel is being advanced, therefore I will rejoice. Because he knew what was really excellent. He knew what was really good. And what was really good and what was really beneficial for those he loved was that the gospel would go forth. And thus he could rejoice. But now Paul lets us peer more deeply even into his own heart. And he comes to this expression, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What does he mean by that? Notice, if we begin again in the middle of verse 18. He says, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, body, whether by life or by death. You see, Paul's desire in life is that whether he lives or whether he dies, and even in his living and dying, that Christ would be honored. If you have an NIV, it says that Christ will be exalted in his body. And that's really a better sense there. Christ in his life to be exalted. That is, to be magnified. That is, to be seen. Paul desires in his life that he, as John the Baptist coined, 
that he would diminish, but that Christ would increase. So that people would see him, Paul, and not think of him, Paul, but think of Jesus. And in some sense, Christ would be seen in him. The greatest compliment you could pay Paul is not that you're a great preacher or really like being around you or that you're impressive, but the greatest compliment you could pay the Apostle Paul is when I'm around you, I think about Jesus. When I'm around you, it draws me to Christ. That would be his greatest aspiration. You wanted to affirm him, that's what you'd say. It's sort of like the person who had a teacher and had loved his teacher and then went out and did what his teacher had taught him. And upon doing what his teacher had taught him, someone come to him and say, you know who you remind me of? Oh, that would be a thrill. And that's Paul's deal. You know who you remind me of? You know who you draw me to? Christ to be exalted, to be magnified. And it's here that uh, Baptist preacher John Piper from Church in Minneapolis makes a very good point about magnifying Christ. He says, Paul desired, and we are to magnify Christ, not like a microscope, but like a telescope. See, a microscope magnifies by taking that which is very small that you couldn't otherwise see and enables you to see it. Because it's small, it's so small you can't see it. But a telescope enables us to see that which is really big, but it's like way out there, and it draws it close. So Paul's desire to exalt, to honor Christ is to magnify Christ, not like a microscope, because Christ isn't little, but to magnify him like a telescope, that is to say, to draw him close, to draw him near, to bring him into some sense of being visible, to be seen by others. So Paul desires, in that sense, to exalt, to magnify Christ. That's his, his, burning, his burning passion. And thus he says, therefore, for me to live is Christ. For me to live is to honor Christ. For me to live is to magnify Christ. For me to live is to show off, if you will, Christ. To show Christ forth. But to die is gain. What an interesting expression. And to die is, is gain. Now, this isn't some suicidal sort of expression of Paul. He isn't contemplating suicide here. He's just simply facing the reality of his life. He's in prison. He could be executed. He could be free. He could live one moment, he could be dead the next moment. He's just playing that over in his mind. He knows that the particular circumstance isn't up to him. He isn't sitting, well, since dying, saying that since dying is gain, I'm going to take my life. That isn't the point. He's just simply saying the reality of my life is I'm going to live and I could, I could die. Both are, are realities facing me. Which would I rather? And he says, well, if I'm going to live, it's to exalt Christ. Only in the sense he pauses and smiles and says... What otherwise could sound rather morbid and odd, but to die is gain. Now, why is that? Turn to chapter 3 and verse 8, where Paul speaks of gain in another passage. And I, I don't want to steal our thunder when we come to this passage in chapter 3 next year. But Paul writes in verse 8, Indeed, account everything as loss, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. You see, the reason that Paul could count death as gain is that at death we gain Christ. 
in the most intimate, personal way. It's a gain because we gain Christ. For me, I think contemplate heaven. Not so much that I gain Christ sometimes, but because I'm just tired of life. (laughs) I'm just tired of the responsibility of it. I'm tired of the weariness of it. I'm tired of the sin that I see in my own life and the life of others. And I'm tired of war and I'm tired of injustice. And I just want to get away from it. I just want to, want to move on. And contemplating a place where there's no more tears and there's no more poverty and there's no more pain and all of that seems rather nice compared to here. But that wasn't Paul's point. Paul's point was death was gained not just because of all that, which would be true, but because he'd be in the very presence of Because you see, in his life, that was his goal. Thus, in his death, that was his goal. To live is Christ. To die is gain. So he says, even now, he suffered the loss of all things to gain Christ. He's even willing to suffer the loss of his own life to gain Christ, to be in his presence. And so you notice, if you know this passage, and many of you do, I'm sure, that Paul discusses his life and all the things that he could have put his confidence in. For instance, in the middle of verse 4, he says, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And so he's saying, All of that which secured my position socially, economically, religiously, politically, that got in the way of knowing Christ. So I got rid of it. It was like rubbish or literally dung. He flushed it. He got rid of it all so that he could know Christ because that was his burning passion. That was his burning desire. And thus now he lives in Christ, by Christ, through Christ from Christ, for Christ, everything in his thinking. And he explains that in verse 9. And it says, and, and, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of, own, of, of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. He says, my very life, my very eternal life comes from Christ. I don't count my righteousness, I count his. I don't live because of what I've done, I live because of what... what what he has done. That's what's important. Not me, him. Not my righteousness, his. My righteousness gets me nowhere. Actually, it gets me somewhere. That's the bad news. Christ's righteousness gets us somewhere. Glory. Acceptance by God. He says, so I live in Christ. I live from him. I live upon his righteousness. He gives me life. Then in verse 10, he says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and they share in his sufferings. That is, Paul says, my very life is transformed by Christ. So I want to know the power of the resurrection. The power of the resurrection is the power that goes from death to life. He says, I want to know that in my own experience. Romans 5 says that we're united to Christ in his death, that we might be united to Christ in his resurrection, that we might be united to Christ in his life. The death he died, he died to sin. The life he lives, he lives to God. And so Paul's saying, I want to know the power of his resurrection from death to life, transformed by Christ, even to the degree that it means I must fellowship in his sufferings because I know in those sufferings, then that's when I mature. 
That's when my faith is tested. That's when my faith is refined. That's when I'm growing, you see. And so Paul says, that's what I want. I want my life is Christ. Because it's his righteousness and his transforming power. And then finally he says in verse 11, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And when he says by any means possible, he doesn't mean that there's some other way apart from Christ. He's just saying, I don't know the particular circumstances that's going to lead to my death that will ultimately therefore lead to me seeing Jesus. By any means, I don't care what those means are. You can execute me. You can leave me for dead. You can run me ragged in ministry. You can let me die as an old man or now or whenever. By any means possible, all I care about is the gain of Christ, knowing him, being found in him. So Paul's able to say, for me to live is Christ, but yet to die is gain. Because in this life, my focus is Christ. In the next life, I'm in his very presence. Now, having said all that, raises, for me at least, a couple of questions. The first one is this. Upon what is Paul's confidence that he will be able to exalt Christ in his body whether he lives or whether he dies? Okay? First question is, where is Paul's confidence upon what is it grounded, what is it founded, that he will be able to live in such a way that Christ will be exalted in his body whether he lives or whether he dies. That is to say, upon what confidence does Paul have that he's able to honestly and honestly say, for me to live is Christ? You understand the question? Now, that's not an important question for you if you don't care about Christ being your life. Now, if you care that Christ is your life and that you're able to say for me to live as Christ and this is an important question upon what would you put your confidence to be able to say that Christ will be exalted in my body whether I live or whether I die for me to live as Christ where would your confidence be notice first of all that Paul's very confident in the middle of verse 19 he says that this will turn out for my deliverance as is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now as always Christ will be honored in my body. He's pretty confident about that. Doesn't seem to be hedging at all. Doesn't seem to have any, any, any real lack of, of, of assurance there that this is going to take place. So he's very confident there. And he's confident that all this is going to work out for his deliverance. Now that doesn't necessarily mean his deliverance from prison. It means his deliverance, as he says, from shame from being ashamed. Paul's saying, I'm going to be able to persevere to the end, regardless of whether I live or whether I die, whether I'm in prison or whether I'm out, whether I'm released or whether I'm not. My deliverance here is that I won't be ashamed, that whether I'm testifying in the courts of Rome or whether I'm facing the Lord himself, I won't be ashamed. I'll be found in him. Where's his confidence? Well, that's in the, that's in the beginning of verse 19, he says, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, the second one of those two, the first one being their prayers, the second one being the help of Jesus Christ, Spirit of Jesus Christ, the second one is expected. I think if I ask you, you know, where's your hope? You'd say, well, my hope is in the, the work of the Holy Spirit in my life to enable me to persevere to the end. That's what Paul's saying. Say the help of the Spirit of Christ. We would expect that. 
and it's true. Paul would certainly expect the help of the Holy Spirit as he's testifying in Rome because the Lord Jesus said that don't worry about what you're going to say when you're called before the authorities on my account. The Holy Spirit will give you the words to say. Mark chapter 13, verse 11. I have that one always in my mind because I live with this little buzz thinking maybe someday that'll happen. Who knows in our lifetime? Maybe we'll have the opportunity. We'll get arrested for the sake of the gospel. We'll be all nervous and everything. And, and we'll have an opportunity to face our accusers. And, and, and I've thought, I have a tendency to be a little over-prepared certain things. And um, I remember one time, first time I ever preached in the church in Massachusetts. I was reminded of this when I was back in New England this week, last week. And someone came to me and said, you remember the time you preached in our church? And this kind little old lady, Kay Aspasy, you remember came up to you and said that was so good young man and right off the top of your head and uh, Karen died because she knew I'd spent about 80,000 hours preparing that but I have a tendency to be a little prepared sometimes and so um, I've often thought I need to prepare something for just in case that happens but I'm always reminded that Jesus said no 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 don't worry it'll be given to you what to say at that moment by the Holy Spirit so I go okay 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 I'll chill but so you would expect Paul to say that. And you would expect Paul to say this because he knew that it was the Spirit of God who did work in him. The interesting one of this is the fact that he says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. You see, Paul is getting assurance from the prayers of the people in Philippi on his behalf. And you get this sense of Paul saying, Your prayers being heard by God, answered by him, so that I'm strengthened by the Holy Spirit and enabled, therefore, to persevere through this so that I won't be ashamed, so that I'll be able to exalt Christ whether I live or whether I die. And that's an interesting one, but it shouldn't be really, should it? Because why do we pray anyway? Don't we pray that God will help us? Don't we pray that the Holy Spirit will enable us to maintain faith? Don't we pray that the Holy Spirit will enable us to persevere to the end? Don't we pray that the Holy Spirit will help us in every situation so that we might, whether we live or whether we die, exalt Christ through and in our very lives? In fact, there's a very close relationship between our prayers and the help of the Holy Spirit. Turn to Luke and chapter 11. <clears throat> Luke and chapter 11. In verse 9, this is right after Jesus had taught his disciples what we call the Lord's Prayer, and no doubt it was, no doubt he prayed this or used this as a model for his own praying, but really we should call it the Disciples' Prayer because it was the prayer that he taught them uh, to pray and to use as a model for their praying, but we, we, whatever we call it, he had just taught them, and then he gives them some confidence with a bit of a parable, and then in verse 9 he says this in Luke 11, he says, <clears throat> and I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Now, you know if you have a, a, a Bible that gives some explanation, you know this passage, you know that those verbs, ask, seek, and knock, are in Greek, what we call a continuous present imperative. So it means that it could be translated ask and keep on asking, seek, and keep on seeking, knock, and keep on knocking. That is to say, this isn't a one-time prayer, not a one-time prayer promise. This is an ongoing life of continual the old-fashioned word, beseeching God. Uh, so it's, it's that. And so then in verse 
then he says, um, verse 10, for everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead give him a serpent, or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you, then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now, Matthew records this in a different teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, um, how much more will the, heavenly, uh, will the Heavenly Father give good things to those who ask him? But on this occasion, Jesus said, give the Holy Spirit. Now you might say, but Jesus, I thought as believers we already have the Holy Spirit. And I think Jesus would turn to you and say, I'm not into technical theology at the moment. I'm trying to help you get something here. And that is, I want you to pray. Dependence upon God knowing that you need the working of the Holy Spirit in your life, the help of the Holy Spirit in your life to enable you to exalt Christ in your body, whether you live or whether you die, so you can say, for me to live is Christ. I wish you all to be preachers, if only to experience what I and I trust every preacher worth his salt experiences every Sunday morning. My alarm is set for 4 a.m. on Sundays. I'm usually awake ahead of time. And as I wake, I find myself instinctively praying, Oh, God, help me. And the reason, I think, that I instinctively pray that on Sunday mornings is because all night agitated in my head I know what I'm about to do and I know that unless Christ is exalted magnified, shown, seen all of what I do is a waste but you see that shouldn't just be the cry of a preacher at 4 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday this is our very lives all of us should be crawling out of bed and crawling into bed and everything in between saying, oh God, help me. Because you see, if Christ is to be our life, then what we're called to is to exalt him, to magnify him, to show him all situations, every circumstance, and who amongst us is equal to the task. So Jesus said, all right, ask, keep on asking, seek, keep on seeking, knock, keep on knocking with confidence and do it for each other too. Because as you do that, my Heavenly Father, who is good, unlike you who are evil, my Heavenly Father will give you the Holy Spirit. That is, your work from the Spirit in you, the Holy Spirit in you, to cause you, to enable you, to strengthen you, to show forth, magnify, exalt, honor Christ in your body, whether you live or whether you die. That's what you need. And so Paul is taking great assurance from knowing that they're praying for him because he's thinking, I think, that if they're praying for me, they're asking for me, what the Father has said he'll give to me, which is the Holy Spirit, who is, who is the one I need to enable me so that Christ will be exalted in my body whether I live or whether I die. What do you pray for yourself? Pray. That God will give you the Holy Spirit in such measure that you need so that Christ can be seen through your life. Pray for your children the same. 
pray for our church family the same. Okay? Paul's in confidence. Sometimes I wonder that we don't have such little joy because we have such little assurance because we have such little praying. But then I ask, all right, if all this is going on in Paul's life, how does this impact him? How does this affect him? How does this influence the decisions, the choices that he makes in his own life? Now notice, in chapter 1 and verse 22, he says, If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I, which, uh, which, yeah, blah, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. Again, he's not suicidal. He's just simply looking at his life, saying, I could live, I could die. Yeah, I wonder which would be better. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. He says, oh, I spent my whole life losing everything for the sake of Christ so that I could know him. What's my life? I'd just as soon lose that so I could know him as well, so I could see him and be with him and present with him and nothing between him and me. That's far better. And if Paul, in some sense, were thinking only of himself, he'd stop there. But he goes on. He says, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you, with, uh, you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. He's saying, well, let me think about you now, church in Philippi. If I live on, that means I don't get to see Christ, but it means that I could work in such a way that your advancement in the gospel might be great and that your joy might increase. So I'll do that. See, all this impacted the way Paul thought. His knowledge of the gospel, what was really important, his love for the people growing, enabled him then to approve that which was excellent, that is, staying on. I often wonder if somebody would come to Paul and say, Paul, do you want out of prison? I think he'd start thinking. He'd go, well, I was actually thinking about being executed. Because then I could be with Jesus. Don't you know that would just drive his prison guards crazy? What do we do with this guy? He doesn't care if we kill him. And then you think, but no, if I could stay here, some really cool things happening with the gospel. In fact, all of Caesar's household has now heard the gospel. And I think there's some other things we could be doing. But if I get left out, if you, if you leave me out, you, you let me go, then I could go back to Philippi. And if I go back to Philippi, then maybe I could do something in some way that would help them in their progress in the gospel. And they could even grow stronger in the faith and their joy would increase. I get the feeling that the prison guard would say, Paul, isn't there somewhere in there that you'd be free? That, that you'd have a nicer life? That you could come and go as you please? That you wouldn't be chain-linked to this other guard? And I think Paul would scratch his head and go, no, that's not that important. Because, you see, he had a knowledge of the gospel and a love for the people that enabled him to approve that which was Excellent. Because in Paul's decision-making process, he never made a decision about himself 
that didn't include and wasn't governed by what was best for the gospel, what exalted Christ, and what was a blessing to people. Even to the degree that he didn't think of what was best for himself. Actually, he knew that thinking of the gospel and thinking of that which would exalt Christ and thinking of that which would be a blessing to people would be the best for himself because that would bring him the greatest joy. Because the focus of his life was Christ and people, not himself. So I wonder, if I'm going to say for me to live as Christ, what does that mean? How is it that I can exalt Christ in my body whether I live or whether I die? I had a little bit of an uh, opportunity to learn about this the other night. Sunday night, I was in Logan Airport, flying back uh, from Boston, and uh, my plane was to leave at, 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 at 7 o'clock, and it just so happened that a huge fog went over Logan Airport, and no planes could leave. So they were going to have to rebook us out the next morning, and many of you have been through this drill. You stand in line, try to get the next best flight you possibly can, knowing there isn't anything leaving that night. It'll have to be the next morning, and all of your plans, you're working through all the plans and so forth and so on. What are you going to do? Uh, and so forth. Fortunately, by the grace of God, I was third in line. Not so much that that put me front, but it let me observe two people ahead of me. And in observing the two people ahead of me and knowing I was going to have to preach this passage, <laughs> so glad I wasn't first, I'd have blown the whole thing. I began to see how unexalting of Christ getting angry in this situation was. So I began to think, okay, God, for me to live is Christ. I don't want to be ashamed as I face you. Therefore, I, need, I want to exalt Christ in my body, whether I live or whether I kill them. No, whether I live, <laughs> whether I live or whether I die. So what do I do? And this wasn't all that profound, I suppose, but you know, the word of the Lord was impressed upon my heart. Be nice. That would exalt Christ. Just be nice. Look at them. And then I was impressed upon that line that I've given my children so many times. You can do this mad or you can do this happy, but you're going to do this. <laughs> and so I said, all right, I'll be nice. And it's, I was, you know, I, I'm going to now lose my reward. I was really nice. Uh, but, uh, but I hope and I pray that that exalted Christ in so doing. You see, that's, that's this thought process, however mundane that illustration is. That's the thought process in every circumstance, in every situation. Whether you're rear-ended, how do I exalt Christ? If someone comes to you with a particular need and says, I need you to help me, how do you exalt Christ at that particular moment in time? What do you do? You need to exalt Christ, love people. And Paul, you see, thought through and existed for the advancement of the gospel in the lives of other people and for their joy in the faith. And so how is it that we make decisions that will help other people advance in the gospel and have more joy in the faith? I was thinking the other day that in talking to a young man, a young college guy, uh, that, that this applies even to the decisions that we make about what we wear. And, and I don't want this to sound terribly sexist for the women in the congregation, but this young man said to me, he said, I wish that the women, the girls that I know, would think of me when they dress. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, he didn't put in this language, but since I was preaching this, I put in this language. For his progress and joy in the gospel, it would help 
if young women would dress more modestly because he has a problem, young men, all, I won't still ask for a raise of hands, I have a lust problem. The psalmist writes, to put away the sins of your youth, all kinds of passions in youth. And he said, and so I'm thinking, yes, a young woman is thinking about how to dress, a young Christian woman is thinking how to dress, shouldn't she think about the progress and joy, progress in the gospel, joy in the faith, of young men. Not a legalistic thing, just a loving thing. What's important to exalt Christ? To love. Right. The way that we spend our time, the decisions we make. Is it simply a cost-benefit analysis of, of, of what I have time for, what I don't, what will help me, what won't? Do we ever focus our attention on what my answer, how that may impact another person? Uh, to go to a Bible study, for instance, is not only just for you, but you could, in the midst of that, just by your very presence, encourage somebody else. I told this story before, but it had a profound effect on me. I don't need this anymore. Um, the uh, a profound effect on me that, that a, a, a guy I didn't even like came to me and said, Billy, you're going to go to the men's Bible study. This is in a church in Florida. And I said, I don't think so. And he said, oh, he says, when you go, it's better for me. And I'm thinking, I don't even talk to you. I didn't like the guy. But I began to realize then that not my presence, but the presence of others. Do we think that way? How do I exalt Christ? Am I only thinking of me at this moment in time, whether this is good for me or not? How could it encourage somebody else in the gospel when they come to pray? Whether we teach Sunday school, whether we serve at Link, whether we, whether we help this group or or whatever it is that we do. How are we thinking? What goes into the process? Cost-benefit analysis for me? Or am I thinking about exalting Christ and, love, and, and thus loving someone else? Their progress and joy in the faith. How we use our money. All of those things together. As I read this passage, I think, oh, here was Paul, he's filled with joy. And he was filled with joy while... I would say it this way, hardly ever thinking about himself, but always thinking about the exaltation, the magnifying, the showing forth of the very character person of Christ as he loved others. I want to be like that. Let's pray. Father, I do pray for me and for us that you would grant to us in increasing measure the working of the Holy Spirit in us that we may be delivered and thus not ashamed when we face the world nor our Father in heaven, but that we would exalt Christ in our lives, in our living, and even in our dying, that we might say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Father, I pray this Holy Spirit works in us right at that moment and those moments of decision as we think about what we're going to do, what we're going to wear, what we're going to spend, where we're going to go, how we're going to act. It enables us to think, to 
exalt Christ and to love others and to exalt Christ by loving others. Father, may this not simply be a trite sort of Sunday school thing, but may this define our very lives. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. As you do, I remind you that there are elders available to pray. Um, So please take advantage of that. I'm not going to greet at the door today uh, because I don't want to give you whatever it is that's somewhere between my nose and chest. (laughs) And, um, And so, yeah, I don't want to share that. Though, as you know, I love to do that. So I'll be back in my office and you can come and see me if you want to. But uh, I just don't want to cough on anybody and all that sort of thing. So, bless you. The response to the benediction is simply this, for me to live as Christ. Hallelujah. Now, it may be rather sheepish to say that boldly, but I urge you, if it's the desire of your heart, to say it boldly, at least as your aspiration, as your desire. Please receive this as God's benediction. Now to him, who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ever ask or imagine through his power that is at work within us, to be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, for me to live is Christ. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.